Hey everybody, just a quick little announcement before we get into this week's episode. About halfway through the episode, we're joined by uh, Tom's daughter, who was refusing to have a nap while we were recording. So, if you hear any noises in the background, uh, you'll definitely hear her once or twice, but uh, hopefully it's not too uh, distracting, but just thought we'd give a heads up. Anyway, on with the episode. Episode of the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris, and I'm joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host Tom. Hello. And uh, how you going, Tom? Yeah, good, thank you. You good? Yeah. Thanks <laughs> so, for asking. Lovely sunny day here in Melbourne. Yeah. Had a good week. <laughs> yeah, I have. <laughs> <laughs> We were joking about this off mic uh, last weekend. It's like me trying to infuse like the the kind of laid back attitude there. <laughs> but enough of that. <laughs> Tom has no comment. Great success. <laughs> On that note, uh, welcome Eric. We hey everybody. And uh, Eric has joined us to discuss uh, David Cronenberg's 1983 film Videodrome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to see this film for a long, long time. Mm. Just off that one still frame of the bubbling dude on the ground. Oh, yeah. That, like, I know that's the weirdly the right. fra- the image they use for like the thousand yeah. and one movies to see before you... Oh, of all the images to use. Yeah, like use the TV with the head or whatever. Yeah, that's like, a great image. Yeah. The one on the actual Criterion box. But, um, <laughs> but no, we need Barry Convicts like exploding. Exploding <laughs> into like a ball of... With the cancer mittens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but before we get into the film itself, I kind of wanted to go around the table and uh, see, get your takes on Cronenberg in general. Like, uh, neither of you had seen this film before. No. Um, were you very familiar with Cronenberg in the past? Uh, I've seen The Fly. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I have a feeling that could be it. Like, haven't Naked Lunch is him, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, haven't seen that. Haven't seen um, Scanners. Everyone's seen that one scene in Scanners. Yeah, seen that one scene <laughs> in Scanners, but not the rest of the movie. And. Um, yeah, like I'm... Fr- Dead Ringers. No. So I'm sort of familiar with his, like, style and then, like, what he's famous for with practical effects and stuff, but that's mm-hmm. about it. And the obsession with the flesh. <laughs> yes, yeah. Mm. Um, that's it for me. Mm. And, Tom, yours is mainly... We kind of went through it a little bit at the end of last week's episode, but, um, yeah, yeah the primarily the stuff we've done for the podcast and The Fly, is it? Yeah, I've seen Existence as well. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love Cronenberg so much. Yes. I, I don't know why I keep waiting for these films to pop up on the spine number, because I should just watch them all. Yeah. <laughs> he's becoming my one of my favourites, if not my favourite, just because it's just so entertaining to have social commentary, um, philosophical ideas, and body horror. Yes. <laughs> yeah. What a combination. Yeah. He, he's one yeah. of those filmmakers that... Every one of his films seems distinct and different, yet it is very much dealing with a similar kind of vibe and style and tone across his whole filmography. Like, even when you get to stuff like History of Violence or Eastern Promises, like, his more grounded in reality, like the Russian mob movie and stuff, it still has mm. a very oddly Cronenberg feel to it. And, yeah, he, he's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I've been on a Cronenberg kick ever since watching this at the beginning of the week and rewatched The Dead Zone. It's a fun Christopher Walken classic. <laughs> yes, heard of it, haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess um, at that note, do we jump into Videodrome itself? Sure. Um, yeah, all I have to say is I love The Fly a lot. <laughs> and that's the extent of my Cronenberg experience. Um, so yeah, I was pumped when you let me know this was um, finally... <laughs> oh no, look, look, what spine number is it now? Uh, 248. Yeah, like, I think the last one I was on like was 100 spines ago, so... <laughs> Quite possibly. Yeah. Um, so, no, it was good. Hmm. But, yeah, well, speaking of The Fly, that was his very next film he ended up doing after this. Uh, this was his... Uh, Videodrome is his first major studio film, uh, working with Universal. Um, previous to that, he just kind of did independent, weird Canadian films. <laughs> yep. Like Scanners, The Brood, all of them are sort of independently produced and things. So this is him working... Within the studio system for the first time. I think Scanners had some commercial success relative to 
its budget. Is that right? Uh, relative to its budget, yeah, but it wasn't I mean, like not, you know, it didn't blow up necessarily, but it was. No, no, his his biggest hit is The Fly. Oh yeah, like for sure. His, his only hit, really. I, I don't know. Like Eastern Promises and and History of Violence did okay, okay. and like you know garnered a couple Academy Award nominations okay. and things. Um, Vigo Mortensen did yeah. right out of. History of Violence, didn't he? Uh, he did okay, but he got an Oscar nomination for Best Actor for Eastern Promises. Oh, is that the one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I, I really do like the three films they've done together. But um, I'll we'll quickly jump. I'll do the back of the box here, what Criterion have to say. Uh, when Max Wren goes looking for edgy new shows for a sleazy cable TV station, he stumbles across the pirate broadcast of a hyper-violent torture show called Videodrome. As he struggles to unearth the origins of the program, he embarks on a hallucinatory journey into a shadow world of right-wing conspiracies, sadomasochistic sex games, and bodily transformation. <laughs> Starring James Woods and Deborah Harry in one of her first film roles, Videodrome is one of writer-director David Cronenberg's most original and provocative works, fusing social commentary with shocking elements of sex and violence. With groundbreaking special effects, makeup by Academy Award winner Rick Baker. Yeah, he, he did. Um, he got the first best makeup. Oscar, yes, is that right? for, uh, for uh, American, American Wolf in London. Yeah, I was gonna say. I'm going to bring it up early, but that gun fusion scene into his hand, I was just thinking, this is very American Werewolf. Mm-hmm. There we go. Yep, yep, that is Rick Baker at his best. Well, he also did Gremlins, which is also at his best as well, I, I feel. Oh, Gremlins. I love Gremlins, but I rewatched Gremlins recently, and it's 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 a, it's a lot of rubbery puppets that don't do much in the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love okay. that, but that's the point of that film. It's like a yes. schlocky, be yeah. great fun, but yeah. But um, where do we go? Where do we I start? Think, I think we start with Cronenberg. Let's. There is a lot to cover, um, but I think we start with Cronenberg and the production. Um, and this came from the idea when he was a kid. He would, you know, at nighttime the broadcasts were, were over in Canada, and he'd turn his satellite dish or pick up some signals across the way uh, in Buffalo in America. Mm-hmm. And there was always that that worry that a signal he'd pick up would be kind of some forbidden and corrupted. Uh, signal and he'd be all of a sudden on the other edge of 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 the television screen his mind being warped and and destroyed by some like yeah smart snuff whatever you want to call it Hmm. and this was um also sort of around this time in you know the the 70s in canada was uh the creation of city tv which was the sort of independent channel there that ran you know uh lots of kind of you know, softcore porn and like independently produced kind of content. Yeah. And so it was like that was quickly rising to prominence and was like a really popular channel. So it was like, all right, well, let's meld these two ideas and see what we get. Okay. So it was his own like life experience and then what was going on with TV at the time. Yeah. yeah a, a lot of his ideas come from his dreams. So. Yeah. Cool. And that's how like they kind of got their own. It's like a dream logic to a lot of his films. Yeah. Especially this one where I like one of my favorite parts is when there's the. The first instance of the vagi- like stomach vagina, yes. and James Woods kind of double take, where it's just like it's happening, just like in a dream, like it happens, and you're just kind of like, oh, okay, and you just kind of go with you it, just go with yeah. it a little bit, it um, just sort of flows and then moves on to something else, yeah, yeah. and just like inexplicably, there's a kind of dream logic to it all, um, a dream horror too, but um, yeah, I thought it was funny also that like he had to make two softcore pawns. For this film, oh yeah, you know, yeah, like you got a yeah. pre-production. Oh, God. Um, sure. Samurai uh, Dreams, Samurai Dreams, yes, yes, and the Dionysus one. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He was really adamant, like he's he wasn't going to let any second unit stuff. He was like, no, no, if I I'm I wrote, I'm making this. I guess <laughs> I'm not going to force anyone off to, else to go after put up and make this stuff no, so. it's, my, it's my program yeah but those type of things like samurai dreams and things those were the type of things you would find late night on um city tv yeah so yeah that's sort of him nodding like hey well what would happen if we you know take this the step further and then hence we get to videodrome if society is this is becoming too soft for society yeah and yeah. then i think that's where you get into the whole uh dissection of censorship and the corruption of society through media which is like yeah. the main that's a big part of what this film is 
on the surface. Yeah, yeah, I loved. I was watching um, Mark Cremode, the uh, the British film critic, um, is a huge Cronenberg fan. <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah, and uh, it was um, just watching a little, listening to him talk a little bit about Videodrome, and he was discussing the whole um, it this coming out right in the middle of the Video Nasties era, mm-hmm. which was uh, a period in the late seventies, early eighties in Britain where. Um, directors had to like uh, famously I know Sam Raimi had to go to try to court to defend the evil dead really yeah because he was on trial for obscenity I mean it's pretty extreme film in a lot of ways but like yeah he had to prove that it was art and that happened with a lot of films and a lot of films ended up getting banned and you know dubbed the video nasties because uh, censors viewed them as these are pushing the boundaries too far and they are corrupting and going to destroy the fabric of our society. Like Wes Craven did that a long time before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my God. And even going back before that, you've got like Bergman was doing that stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, you know, like Last House on the Left is a remake of a Bergman film. Really? <laughs> yeah. Last House on the Left is twisted. Yes. So, um... <laughs> but, and, and so this is, I think obviously Cronenberg's very much inspired by that where it's, well, okay, you think television is the idea of television and media being able to corrupt people let's take that idea and run with it and yeah. see what happens when it literally does that yeah that was a very cool concept and mm. it goes it goes both ways because max ran um he's he himself is interested in finding something that's you know at the cutting edge of 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 like you know an ambiguous immoral um media you know presence or whatever um but he's also you know, these are one of the owners of a corporation looking to get any kind of more hardcore smut on the TV. Well, that's himself, what he, so that's what he says when he's on the talk show. He's uh, when he first meets Nikki and things. He says, you know, like he's called a, pe- a smut peddler and things. And he's just like, well, I, I'm doing it because I my channel offers a service that they can't get anywhere else. It's supply yeah, it's demand. It's pure basic. capitalism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. so from a financial and business point of view. Mm. Yeah, he's being really switched on, but spot on, like you said, Tom, like, he gets hooked himself on Videodrome. Yeah. Um, because he is fascinated by it. And I but, think, but these days, um, I mean, you can draw the parallel with even, like, video games nowadays, people mm. trying to push that, um, that angle of ultra-violence and super-realism and all that sort of stuff. Uh, like, I, I read last week in, in the paper, well, you know, on Reddit or whatever, that... Um, the devs of MK Mortal Kombat 11, mm-hmm. they'd be like watching like body mutilation videos on the internet. People that were making like, Red Dead were watching hangings just so they could figure out how to model the physics of a hanging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and you can start to see that the themes that Videodrome is discussing in early 80s applies to a very real extent to not just video games but the internet at large. Yep. Oh, I was shocked how well the this film held up in terms of thematically yeah. <laughs> for 2020. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. even, cause it's even more easier to find, uh, murder and, you know, like obscene sexual content on the internet now, way more than, than it was when it, it was, was just creeping into the television scene. Mm. And like one of the biggest things I was sort of thinking about watching this film was like, like say Chris, the video nasty stuff. Um, like the, TV was initially such a wholesome family thing. Like, you know, the American family in the world would sit around the TV every night and watch very wholesome shows Mm. um, for the time um, and things like that. And then this is like that corruption of family values as people just go and seek the next thing. And then there's like obviously the whole church dedicated to cleaning people's TV habits and stuff. Oh my God, yes, with Brian We'll get into that. (laughs) But yeah, I thought that was really interesting. It's like, yeah, so TV, which was something which was innocent and family friendly is being corrupted gradually. And what's the next step of that corruption pathway? Yeah. Um, Just, yeah, that was really for 1983 film. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, it was was just on it for... um, really good time and got well ahead of that um, yeah. that message it mm. just bums me out so much that Cronenberg can't get a film made nowadays he hasn't made a film in nearly 10 years and apparently has one ready in normal finance I'd <laughs> be surprised that he wouldn't crowd, crowdfund because there'd be that much oh yeah people or, would throw money at him or just go Netflix <laughs> just go Netflix just, just walk up to them yeah hmm but yeah, it's it's such an original creative idea, and it is yeah examining something that was very real and very kind of 
on the pulse of nine, early 80s kind of culture and yeah brilliant <laughs> i love the um the terminology they give for the people who want to see this stuff the subterranean market <laughs> which is like borderline dark web really yeah. like mm-hmm. oh, um, yeah yeah i just love that term like underground dwellers black market sort of stuff people are really looking for the edge of what they can find and see mm. and and then like uh, the characters that embody that like i love Marsha as a character the um the older woman who is like oh. he, he's like finder of weirdness yes, yeah his agent sort of yeah yeah and it's just so wonderful when they go out for dinner at like some Turkish restaurant yes. or something and like with her long cigarettes and you're just like oh you're such a wonderful like I understand this character immediately. and when he makes some comment about like you know them he's like oh no you're too old for me yeah and then just like <laughs> the young waiter <laughs> yeah it's so wonderful <laughs> and then as well um harlan as well like his oh, um, yeah he's a programmer essentially um who like the appealing to him on like the level of a pirate and a hacker is so entertaining mm. seeing that like proto thing of like you're, you're doing it for free you're doing it for the love of the challenge and the, yeah. the hunt of the piracy and stuff I was wondering, I, I doubt it, but I was wondering if his name was taken from the author Harlan um, Ellison. I was wondering that as yeah, well. Who's yeah. a very trippy author. Um, mm. Didn't look into it. So um, anyone who wants to out there, go, yeah, let, go hunting and let us know. Yeah, yeah. Harlan um, has a weird way of naming his characters. Yeah. Like Max Ren is uh, Ren Max backwards when he was a, that's like a German motorcycle company. And he just liked oh. motorcycles. He, he was yeah. really into motorcycle racing at that time, Cronenberg. <laughs> Fair enough. And I mean, Nikki Brand. Yeah. That, so Nikki's like, she cuts herself and she brands herself with a cigarette. So uh, that's yeah. how she gets her name. Yeah. Okay. He, I love on the audio commentary. He's just like, it's a little on the nose, but it was fun. <laughs> yeah. Or well, maybe Harlem was a pirate, Caribbean pirate. Possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting about the film is like how it starts as this thing of like, all right, we've discovered this pirate station, this weird thing called Videodrome, and how it starts to slowly infect Max and he, his obsession grows with it and builds the hallucinations. The part, like, that's all great, but where the film, where it goes into its second and third act, where it kind of shifts into, like no longer the hunt of where this came from, but why it exists is the interesting one, where you end up having the two rival factions yeah. manipulating this one person whose brain they've essentially destroyed to do their bidding for the sake of... And one was like, you had the um, the Church of the Flesh, the New Flesh, is that right? Uh, well, that's like, the, yeah, the slogan. Brian Oblivion. Brian, Brian Oblivion's um, yeah, Church of the New Flesh or whatever. Uh, so- no, it was the Cathode Raid Church. <laughs> yeah, Cathode Raid Church of the New Flesh. So he's just like a religious sort of... One. And then the other one, obviously, is all about corporation. Which is a spectac- spectacular optics. Yeah, which, like, is, I just thought was such a one of, like, helping people to see kind of thing. Like, they're, they're, they're a business in glasses and vision and, and bringing sight to people. Mm. Like, it's such a, like, a great little dodgy little business front to have. Oh, I know. Wasn't that the, the whole idea of that was they would put out this videodrome to draw out the, the people that were kind of at the... The subterranean the dwellers, if you want. and kill them essentially, and then destroy them. Yeah, so, yeah, it, it's a purging almost to some yeah. degree. Yeah, it, it reminds me of like the I always go back to it, but like Kingsman, like the, the plot to like just turn up a frequency and just get a bunch of people to kill each other. Yes, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's it's really wonderful. The um, uh, convex and Harlan who were running uh, spectacular optics. Um, their convex in particular, how he presents as sort of this holier than thou kind. Of, he's based off uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, the televangelist from the seventies and eighties, <laughs> like one of those first like scam artist TV televangelists. Like the whole, we're doing this for the sake of your soul. We're the right people. We're doing it good. It's Cronenberg's yeah. like that's disgusting. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Yeah, these people that have this idea that they are doing something for the greater good, but are really doing it for their own means. Yeah, <laughs> and let's again all these disparate ideas crammed into this one package. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think one of the strongest images is that that flash TV, um, and the idea that you can have because you're searching so because Max Ren is searching so. Um, intensely uh for for that cutting edge experience um the whole idea of he's kind of morphing into some other entity like the new flesh or yeah yeah um and that you have these props that are becoming bodies so on one end you've got a, a, a man turning into a tv 
or you know some kind of media prop mm-hmm. and then you've got media props televisions guns turning into flesh so it all becomes like this mixed version of reality well that's mm. that's also been a running theme with a lot of Cronenberg's work he he has like long contested that uh, he thinks technology is just an, uh, ex- like the next evolutionary step from mankind and he thinks technology and machinery is uh, complete once or once it fuses with flesh and because yeah. it's not complete until a human interacts with it and then it becomes its purpose like so it's like mm-hmm. yeah and, oh, and, and I mean that goes back to the fly like you know the yeah. whole melding of man and machine like you know and he revisits it with existence with the bioports and the flesh gun in that one as well well let's be honest video uh, existence is essentially a m- continuation a continuation of video drone but just set in the world of video games and VR not television and media mm. yeah but they're one in the same. I mean, you could. I mean, if you made this film nowadays, it would be a flesh phone. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, everybody is, and even that. now, these days, everyone is never without their phone. No, it's like, like mm. if you look at like, <laughs> you look at um, the Twitter accounts of Trump and and even James Woods. Yeah. Uh, and you look at the the Instagram influencers. You look at people's kind of fake. Um, outputting like a fake reality on Facebook all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff it really is mixed like this this whole Videodrome flesh TV um, bodies becoming one with the media itself it, it is happening nowadays so it's a bit um, it's just it just it's just always different it's just crazy like tools and technologies <laughs> yeah it's just um, crazy mm. yeah I found it really fascinating that stuff like like take James Woods who is, I think his Twitter handle's real, at real James Woods, is that right? Uh, my advice is don't go there. He's a massive piece of shit. Well, he's, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Um, yeah. He's, he's not a Hollywood actor, that's for sure, because, I mean, most he, people in Hollywood are, like, left, and he's very much a right, right-wing right um, politics kind of guy. So he never really was going to ever be a, a Hollywood person, but... No, but uh, I'm just, like, I, I will say, for, like, I, I just think he's a horrible disgusting human being now uh in the last couple of years he's he's a despicable person i think personally uh again one of those like separate art from the artist like i i fucking love videodrome and can watch this film Mm -hmm. infinitely but i i there's no way i'm ever going to the bat for him as a good person based on like some of the horrific stuff he says about uh minorities uh immigrants women like disgusting person but he does i mean he's so involved in social platforms that he has, in a sense, become uh, the continuation of Max Ren, the new flesh. James Woods <laughs> is the new flesh. Yeah. Okay, yes, I'll pay that. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, he, yeah. His reality is is so entwined with his media yeah. that he has become the new flesh. Yes, and it's destroyed anything that was there previously. <laughs> yeah. Every, everyone is a little bit like that, I think. Um, yes, unless you, if you If you own a smartphone, you're kind of mm. to some degree like that. Mm. Some more than others, but uh, but yeah, I think that's kind of funny that the 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 Max Ren suicides to become the new flesh and like it happened. <laughs> James, he was born again as James Woods. Yes. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I'll pay that. <laughs> well, on that note, do we want to talk about Woods and and Deborah Harry in this film? Yeah. On that yeah. note. Uh, I think James Woods is a perfect. Did a great job in this film. I don't think I've seen him anything else, and I don't don't I don't need to know what he's up to these days. Yep. But I, I'm not really all that aware of James Woods. Um, you, you probably know him best from Hercules, actually. That's one of the only or, studio films that he really did. Uh, Casino. Casino. Scorsese's oh, Casino. Casino he's he? the guy, uh, the drug dealer who, with Sharon Stone, like the skeezy guy. Oh yeah, okay. Um. Uh, yeah, late eighties, early nineties. Uh, the Hard Way with Michael J. Fox. Uh, he was nominated for an Oscar for Salvador, uh, Oliver Stone's. Yes, uh, the I film he did right around the same time as Platoon. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, he's like, yeah, he's kind of. He was like an Alan Baldwin, kind of like an actor, actor kind of guy yep. who was like always would pop up and stuff, and you'd be like, oh yeah, that guy, <laughs> that dude. Yeah, yeah. He's really amazing because I think like a this... Kevin Bacon. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> He's really amazing in this because I think it would be all too easy for a lesser actor to kind of go off the rails with all the hallucinations. Yeah. But he yeah. does it really calmly and he's kind of got a, a strong personality 
again, I was just talking about that double take when he gets the vagina slit. Yeah. It's like a really subtle but strong um, reaction to that. I think anybody else that was kind of half... Oh, God, was, what's happening yeah. to me? They would freak out and yeah. it would turn into like some schlocky rubbish. Yeah, like yes. 80s Bill Paxton. Exactly. Like, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. all respect to Bill Paxton. Yeah. But like, yeah, you, it, it's that calm kind of inquisitive way Max is approaching everything he, that's he happening to him. conveys enough distress with what is going on without yeah. going over the top. Yes. Yeah, yeah and like that... He engages with the um, his weird hallucinatory vision. Mm. Yeah. He, he knows that it needs to be a dream logic and you don't yeah. overreact to dream logic. You just run with it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and um, countering to him, like, Deborah Harry, I think, is amazing in this film. Yeah, I was really impressed with how she went. Mm, this is, like, very early on, like, you know, acting-wise for her. I think it's maybe the second thing she ever acted in. Mm. Uh, but at, it, this is at the height of Blondie. Yeah, like, I figured she, it must have been. She mm. is one of the biggest music stars in the world at this time and then decides to go off and do stuff like this. Which I was going to say, like... Amazing. <laughs> like, bold, ballsy incredible performance um she's a great kind of foil for max in that you know that first time they meet on the talk show and stuff like he points out like you're just exuding this sexual kind of like you know joie de vivre you're dressed in red there's just this air about you and that is i think because of dick casting deborah harry yes that's sort of like how she stood out in that band mm. um yeah i thought she did a really good job because when it's revealed later on that you know she's been a hallucination this whole time basically um, you know, you never necessarily really saw it coming that way. Mm. You, I always sort of, I was viewing it and figuring that her would, demise would occur in in these videos, these snuff films, which at early on you led to believe are real. And then you're thinking, well, like the film's going to go on the detective, like I'll find we'll go, her. Oh and no, let's go find her. We'll oh, go on an eight no. millimeter Nicolas Cage style. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you sort of feel that's the direction it's going to go in, and it does not. Mm. Um, and so she plays that. Um, was that film noir kind of presence yeah. on the TV? Yeah, yeah good call. Yeah. Well, and like yeah. a mix between like the film noir, like femme fatale, as well as almost like a spirit guide for yeah. him. Yeah, like really, like this this hallucinatory person that shows up periodically to guide him deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Debbie Harry, um, she plays such a good support role for uh, for James Woods. Listen to the commentary. Um, which you can find on yeah, YouTube, cool. apparently, um, of James Woods and Debbie Harry talking about their their experiences while making the film. And on the commentary, James Woods definitely has an ego. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's fine. No, I mean, no, yeah, like, he's a, he's a really... I mean, you, you said about the politics stuff just before, but um, that aside, like, he's clearly a pretty smart guy. And um, I guess, like, a lot of actors have the ego. Um, but Debbie Harry was... She's so lovely. Um, and really witty. I think there was a situation when, uh, during filming, it got to the stage where James Woods is like, I've ceased being an actor. I am now just the bearer of the slit. Like the, the chest yeah. vagina. Yeah. <laughs> and Debbie was on set and she said, now you know what it's like. <laughs> and he's uh, like, you're fair enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and I love, like, yeah, I think Cronenberg tells that story on the commentary and he's just like, we have fun. <laughs> <laughs> we make really fucked up movies, but like we have a lot of fun on the sets and do weird, wild stuff. Like it's not. And he facilitates it well. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that note, I found it interesting um, re-listening to the commentary and prep for this episode that this is one of the few films he's ever made where he never really had a finalized script for it. Oh, really? He was he, because the subject matter was so was kind of ever evolving because of what they were discussing and dealing with it. Like. It was a very nebulous kind of thing, and he allowed input from the actors, the producers, cinematographers, and they just kind of... they would There were entire days where they would light an entire set, have everything ready to go, and he'd be like, nah, it's not working. Give me give me an hour, and we'll go write something new, and then they'd change location, do new stuff. And- wow. It's unusual for him, but at the same time, uh, I think the funding they had, they had to get it all spent and done and dusted by the end of financial year. Mm. Yep. Um, I think he got funding from, from the government or something like that, the Canadian government to some degree. Yeah. And uh, at that stage, he's like, oh, fuck, I've only got like kind of a three quarters of a script, so I better finish it while we shoot. And I think even James Woods mentioned that when he saw the first script, he was working off, you know, 70 pages, which is about, I guess, like half to hmm. 
to three yeah. quarters of a script. I yeah. suppose. And then I think I think Woods and Deborah Harry and kind of everyone involved was like willing to jump on board because of seeing you know, his previous work, like Scanners and, you know, The Brood, like the insane performances he pulls out of people and, you know, Oliver Reed and The Brood is insane and, like, great. And So the like, actors were on board, they trusted him, they, yeah, yeah. and they were happy and keen to be part of the process. 100%. Yeah, that's cool. And and the crew, Cronenberg's uh, one of those filmmakers where he is a production designer, Carol Spears, he has worked with on every single film he's ever made. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Mark Irwin, the cinematographer, they'd been working together since Fast Company, in like the early 70s yep. like Howard Shaw the who did the score music, he, yep. did yep. every one of his films I think except for one Howard Lord of the Rings Shaw yeah yep, exactly. <laughs> exactly. yep. but it's like he, uh, same editors everything like he is one of those guys who like he's got no, a team and and just like likes to make it a family fun laid back work much, with your friends how much easier would that be if you've got people who know your style yeah and um, you know you, you None of it are in the ego or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And you just like, yeah, I, I, like I said, I've been on a Cronenberg kick. I was what rewatched The Fly, and then there's a yep. two and a half hour long making of The Fly. Did you watch that as well? I did. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I just like all of the again, it's all the same crew, like Carol Spears and Marco, and they're just like, oh yeah, David Cole. So you're like, cool. I'll just block out this four months for you. Like, cool. Okay. Let me know when we're good. <laughs> like, I don't need to read the script. I'm just on. Yeah, <laughs> like, I think his stories lend itself well to. You don't necessarily need an ending um, if you're going to go. You know, it could be. It'd be hard to imagine what the ending is. So if it's not written, it's going to eventually be written. I can jump in and it'll be fine. And and that works with a couple of his films actually. The kind of air of ambiguity around them, like Scanners, uh, to a lesser extent, The Brood and stuff. Like even Dead Ringers to some degree has a kind of open to your interpretation ending. And this one in particular is like cut to black gunshot like you don't know is he dead is he evolved into a new thing yeah. like what where what are we doing here <laughs> I was actually thinking watching the ending it would have been I would have liked it is you know how initially it's her on the TV showing him what he should do mm-hmm. and then he plays that out like I'm the new flesh I could have should have had her on the TV showing it and then cut and then it's up to the audience to go, did he actually follow that through, hmm. rather than the double up. But that was just me. I was like, that, oh, this is going to be a cool ending. And then, There's an alternate ending. Yeah. Which, which they didn't shoot. Um, I have the info about it here if you want. Yeah, yeah go on. Go <laughs> yeah. on. Uh, so the epilogue was planned but never filmed. In it, Max Wren, Bianca Oblivion, and Nikki Brand appear on the set of Videodrome. Bre- uh, Bianca and Nikki are shown to have chest slits of their own, uh, from which emerge strange mutated sex organs. Uh, this concept was also used uh, in one of Cronenberg's earlier films, Rabid, which is awesome. Uh, the scene was scrapped along with many others due to uh, cost overruns and a bad timing. Uh, Debbie, ha- Debbie Harry had the stomach flu and James Woods was visiting relatives and the sheer difficulty of executing such a special effects scene. Another of ambigu- uh, another, sorry, a number of other ambitious special effects sequences were also dropped throughout the making of the film. Nah. But... <laughs> Like, Cronenberg has said, like, all the actors were totally gay. He was like, I I got this idea where it's just an orgy with mutated sex organs. And everyone was like, cool. I like that. Let's do it. (laughs) But he he does mention in the commentary that because he's atheist, it kind of didn't sit well with him because of the whole rebirth reincarnation. Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, And I I really love the ending they chose Mm. because he's kind of down and out. He hits, he goes into this goes into this ship that's kind of moored and all decrepit and whatnot and he's trying to find the cigarettes can't find any cigarettes yep. and so the TV shows up to comfort him um, which is a, which is a really interesting thing to do and finally the fact that he suicides and the TV kind of showed him the way yeah. kind of suggests that this being connected to media to such an extent is like it damages yourself yeah. and, I, and I love that I love that message a lot Mm. Yeah, I think it because that's true because it fits in really well with his character as well. Because I, as soon as you started seeing the Videodrome tapes, my first reaction is like, these are real. And his naivety about like, how do they do this production value? Where, where, where's the plot? Is this guy a political prisoner? Yeah, like, like the, yeah. <laughs> how, how do they get actors to do this kind of thing? And I'm like, they're not actors, man. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's really. I like thought his naivety was really interesting because particularly when it was later mentioned that these are snuff films, and then of course that they, they never were. Uh, mm. It's its own kettle of fish. But um, yeah, like his real belief in he, his like little deep down belief, his TV is kind of wholesome in a way. It's all acting. Yeah. Um, 
Um, but it still drags him. Well, that's like his progression of character is so interesting. Like, like we were saying earlier, like it starts as a full capitalist. Like, he's only doing this stuff because of the monetary gain in you know hmm. capitalist system. And like you said, he views television as a great new medium and this wonderful like, kind of wholesome, almost yeah. wholesomey kind of thing. And people want it. And then it is just that degradation, like you know, degradation and down the rabbit hole of like this is real and it's corrupting me and turn- and like you know breaking me down. It's, yeah. it's amazing. I mean, I tell you what though, like I messaged you 15 minutes into the film. Oh, it was so great. <laughs> so I was watching this movie a few days ago in the morning. Bowl of cereal, 15 minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> and then that scene with Deborah Harry starts and they're watching like snuff porn basically. Yeah. And then they then they start getting stuck into it with like pins through her ears. I'm like, oh no, I'm in for another like hour and a half of this. So. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, didn't didn't thankfully. Yeah, bowl is real perfect. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm not sure if this is a breakfast movie. I mean I, I, knew, I knew it wasn't gonna be, but <laughs> Yeah. Well, I <laughs> It wasn't taking the turn I expected. I was expecting like this guy bubbling in a pile of acid on the ground. I'm like, I'm that's I can watch that. Yeah, with you're expecting like the Robocop stuff. <laughs> yeah, I can handle that with breakfast. Yeah, so it starts off with a lot of kind of it, it's that kind of sexual like sexual violence that's like obvious like when I got that text from you, I was like, Oh yeah, I forget that it starts. Yeah. This kind of rough like not it's pretty rough. It's pretty rough. Um the the, the video drone tapes themselves at least. Yeah, that, that's what I'm meaning. And but then it ends up I don't know if it's the film itself, like, very cleverly gets you acclimatised to that type of yeah. violence, like, like you know, Max Ren himself, and you get used to it, or if the f- if it does just ease up and it shifts into that more kind of body horror, Cronenberg-esque violence that we're kind of more used to, that you kind of forget about the realistic sexual violence. It's kind of meta in a, in a couple of ways. Yeah. Mm. He's commenting on himself... In a, in a way Cronenberg's doing with this film hmm. it, it's interesting that like we like all of us found like the the actual Videodrome tapes and all of that kind of stuff the more realistic violence to be really sh- like you know that it's not it's someone just being whipped it's not overly violent but it's the context of it is rough yeah. and then cut to like Harlan having like putting in a pulsating videotape into James Woods' chest slit and then pulling out a bloody stumpy oh, yeah, bone know, thing yeah. and we're like oh, that's awesome that, that's a, that hand grenade <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah yeah that's very cool that and one. you're just like wait what you're, to- you're like yay this <laughs> is fun <laughs> versus oh god yeah like yeah it's interesting the snuff films themselves are real mm. quote unquote but then Cronenberg's violence is oh, it, it's it's so obscene that it becomes in a way kind of cartoonish yeah. yes yeah yeah and I don't know whether he made the snuff films so real almost to make a statement and go here here's my cinema now so, mm. yeah like I said borderline cartoonish it's pretty different from the real thing yeah yeah Guantanamo Bay hadn't existed yet in the, in the <laughs> 2000s form at least but um mm. but yeah but but then if he's saying in this film that if you become so connected to media that you damage yourself by by making films that he does he's also saying that you can still explore mm. violence and sex but not have it be you know real yeah so it's a really interesting way to ride that line and you can kind of it's i think it's complex it's hard to, yeah, to really yeah. figure out whether Cronenberg's a part of the problem or not yeah I think it's it he's approaching it from that thing of like he has been accused of being the problem for so long at this point all of his films are censored every single one of his films had with the exception of Fast Company which was like a made for TV film about drag racing Mm. in Edmonton Alberta (laughs) like it's a real it's not great but every other one of his films has been like heavily censored or like rated X uh, and considered snuffy um And so it's it's that thing of like, well, if you think I am the problem, let me now actually address that in... Nelly agrees totally with this. <laughs> she's a Cronenberg fan. Uh... Yeah, she's not consciously aware of it. She will be one day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if Tom has anything to do with it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hmm. But, um, yeah. Uh, it's kind of it's cool. I mean, there's... Uh, it's funny that Cronenberg himself is he looks like a person that's not into this kind of stuff as well do you know about the Martin Scorsese quote famously okay so Martin Scorsese became a big fan of Cronenberg around this time like had seen Scan like heard about him this Canadian filmmaker who lives in Toronto he's like oh can I see a bunch of his films 
the Val the was like, oh, this stuff's amazing. And like met him for lunch and then was shocked as, as Martin, as Scorsese describes it, guy sat down at the table that looked like a Beverly Hills plastic surgeon. <laughs> this is well-dressed, like big glasses, like wholesome looking guy. Yeah. And um, that, because of Scorsese saying that to him, is why Cronenberg gave himself a cameo as like the doctor in The Fly. <laughs> He's just like, well, if I look like a Hollywood doctor, I'm I might just... Myself, <laughs> let's save some money. Yeah. But he is that wholesome, unassuming, soft-spoken... Yeah, I'm fine. It's like the David Lynch stuff where you're yeah. just like, yeah, wholesome. <laughs> well, yeah. He's in this film as well. He's, uh, when Max Wren's donning the that hallucination recording headset. Oh, yeah. So Woods is like, oh, I don't, I don't want to be electrocuted by this thing. Because I think he's like maybe paranoid or he was worried about a puddle of puddles of water in the room and all that sort of stuff. So Cronenberg yeah. had to don the mask himself. So, really? Yeah, that's actually Cronenberg that's, filling in for... him in the mask? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what a take one to the team guy. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's... I don't know. I'm, I'm, in, I'm intrigued to hear what you guys, like, you know, we've obviously talked about it <laughs> a lot today, what the film is ultimately doing and saying. And, like, my, my because it has that ambiguity at the ending and it is a kind of nebulous kind of film like it's about so much there's no one thing to pinpoint it like what each of your kind of takeaway is from it like what you connect with the most um because for me it is the whole uh the debate of censorship is where i kind of connect with that film and it is you know if you have dueling forces on both sides trying to manipulate something in like for their own gains and their own means Mm. it's just going to implode yeah Um, i i guess the one i took away from it um it was like I was saying, like, yeah, it's our place in our society. It's evolution from something wholesome to something a little bit dirty. And then potentially what's the future going to hold with it getting this subterranean market and then potentially leading into taking over our lives. A bit like what you're talking about, Tom, with smartphones. Mm. Um, yeah. But, like, technology, but in this particular case, the video medium, which really, like, televisions themselves weren't... They were in households in the 50s, weren't they? Uh, in America, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, they hadn't been in the household for that long, really. No, they, and they come a long way, and these these things are starting to think. So, um, yeah, that was sort of my big takeaway. Like, here's where we're at in this sort of slightly dystopian near future, where people need therapy to get over their TV addictions and <laughs> yes, and all yeah. this sort of stuff. And then some people are creepy perverts, or yeah, mm. yeah. I think ultimately it's kind of a cautionary tale about how close you get to media, and that reality is mixed. Um, to such an extent where where do you start and the media begin um, and I think that's you know that's the suicide coming out at the end of the film but as you say Chris it's there's just so much more going on yeah. I think like you, there's there's so many different themes and it explores so many different facets of the way that we view um, reality through screens um, and you know Waves, mm. radio waves, whatever. Yep, uh, it's, it's just fucking loaded. So I think ultimately yeah. it is a cautionary tale. But because it's Cronenberg, he himself is kind of mixed in with all of that too. So it's yeah. part of that that horror movement, that, that the, the meta violence. Yeah, and, there's some meta filmmaking there so for it's, sure. It's, yeah. it's yeah. So it's like it's one of those great films where if you watch it again and again, clearly, like now it meant one thing in the '80s and it means something potentially cooler now. Mm. Yeah, because the internet and what, whatnot. Um, you can just revisit and, and just pick up new shit and think about new shit again and again. So well written and executed, there are a lot of themes in them that all fit really well. Yeah, that, that's what's um, so amazing. It's yeah, like it's so tight. It's um, such a tight hour, film. Hour twenty seven. Yeah, it's such an amazing. Not even ninety minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it's got so much polish, and the script wasn't even finished. Yeah. when they started it, so it's quite remarkable. There's, there's even a scene right near the end where he, he visits the, the dancing monkey guy on the street outside. I think it's outside spectacular optical. And it's the guy mm. asking for, for some money for, so he's yeah, give us some money. My monkey can dance. And his monkey is a TV. It's like a coin fed TV. You know, like this is the future. It's not like street form. It's like just another television. Yeah. Um, and I'm like there's one just there. Um, <laughs> this guy wants 10 cents for his TV so his TV can entertain you and he can make a little bit of a living. Mm. Um, just And that's right at the end of the film. It doesn't need to be there anymore. Yeah. Like, James Woods is about to go and put a grenade in a guy's hand via his stomach. Yeah, who's then, like, <laughs> mutated, exploding. Yeah. 
Um, and then the fact that of oh, this film, there's, there's all this we've spoken about, and then we haven't even spoken about the fact that um, what's his face turns into a bubbling pile of goo. Like we really, apart from like talking about it, it's not even that important a scene. No, it, it kind of comes out of left field, and you're just like, all right, roll with it. Yeah, guy's dead. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the, the cancer gun and all that. Yeah. Um, at the time. You know when when you're a kid and your parents say like, "Don't sit too close to the TV." Yeah. Everyone's kind of worried about the waves that are being emitted by everything. Mm. Yeah. Causing causing cancer. I suppose people thought it caused cancer at some stage. Oh yeah, I assume so. Would have been some kind of fear propagation through the media as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, mm. But yeah, it is a, it's an, another little wrinkle that, that it just, puts in. Yeah. Mm. And just fits in there well, and then off you go. But and and it's in those like the back twenty minutes where you it's like if you're a fan of scanners and stuff you're just like here's that stuff like the Rick Baker yeah. insanity that you know has kind of been you know put to the side for the sake of more realistic kind of social commentary violence so yeah um, and as well like the other big thing we haven't even talked about really is Brian Oblivion oh yeah, <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Well, well he is a man that's become like not even figuratively like he is literally He's um, like, like he has VHS like, Betamax tapes now. Yeah, like he, his life after death. Yeah, he saw. He's like, my flesh will will, will die one day. How do I live on? Mm. I record myself doing everything. Yeah, so I can do television interviews. I can seemingly keep on. It's long live the new flesh. <laughs> yeah, really interesting concept. Do people? I mean, that that quote, the long live the new flesh. Is kind of synonymous, and people parrot it across the internet a lot. Do they do they celebrate? Do you think people celebrate that comment that the new flesh is good? I I don't know. I don't think so. I think it it is just such a wonderful turn of phrase within this film. Like it's mm. just so bonkers and batshit crazy and great that people. It sticks with people yeah. rather than what's actually saying in the film, which is not necessarily... No, which is like the next stage of human evolution is become machine, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, or something to that effect. That's yeah. sort of what I get from it. Mm. Um, like like I was saying, it's more of that religious sort of next step in like um, man's evolution. Mm. Um, Corrupted. Yeah. 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 It, it's But it is such a wonderful... Like, it is a synonymous... It's as synonymous with Cronenberg as the scanner's head explosion, I think. Mm. Like, it is so... Yeah, that everyone's like, that's just a classic movie line, but not necessarily, you know... The, what it's actually representing. Yeah. Yeah. So is Long Live the New Flesh um, saying... I mean, it seems like the film is saying, try not to long live the new flesh. <laughs> um, but at the same time we kind of can't help ourselves but be kind of fall into the trap of of being so connected to media in, in a lot of ways mm. well i mean god when when wood says it as the final line of the film he commits suicide <laughs> like it's you know and it's not it is a this is the pursuit of that can lead you to this like you know it's not a you know it's, it's interesting because i actually deleted my instagram app this week because mm-hmm. i was thinking like you know what it's um I didn't want to delete the account. Yeah. Because maybe I will... You, you, d- you don't want to delete everything. Yeah. And I've got a bunch of art there that I don't want to maybe delete forever. But um, at the same time, I was like, yeah, like, I'm on this phone quite a lot. And this, this was right after I watched Videodrome. So it's kind of... <laughs> it's already doing things yeah. to my brain. Um, I think everyone is a, a victim of, of this to some degree. And it's, it's the films like this where you take a step back and you try and figure out to what extent are you happy to go to connect yourself to media. Yeah. Yeah, like, I found in the last year or so, for example, I had to pick up Twitter because of the, um, the master's degree I was doing and things like okay. that. That made a big difference in terms of I was getting just really good, like, up-to-date research and things like that. And I didn't have to hunt it down myself. Just all these academics would tell me where to look. Just pop them and I could look up. It's a really easy way to stay in touch. But then you get drawn into the toxic side of it and just check me regularly. Uh, I, I've never commented on Twitter. I never plan on it. Um, but I keep it because it actually helps my profession quite a bit Mm. but I'm like 
it's I, fun I short, never but... wanted it before in my life because mm. I don't care about people's Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, like I don't follow any celebrities or anything like that. I follow professionals. It's really nerdy. Um, but that serves as a good, decent function. I yeah, say, except so. then they get into like professional debates and it's embarrassing again. Um, <laughs> like it's really funny. It's just like, you know, anyway. So for me, like now I'm... It devolves um, into the internet. <laughs> it's still the internet at the end of the day. You've got these professors in different areas of... Um, of my field arguing with each other over Twitter. <laughs> and they call it healthy debate. Some of them Is it debated. because it's about the healthcare industry? Yeah. Oh, doom. <laughs> um, some of them debate quite quite well, and then others are just, just toxic, and it's just bizarre. Um, I think it's like an ego platform. All these platforms at their best, they serve a decent function. Yeah. But then at their worst, they're just like... Garbage fuck, fires. They fuck, they fuck you up. They well, they fire. amplify it. Yeah. Megaphones. That's it. And then, like, it's just whatever media is the current form of media. Like, back in the 80s, it was television and, and VHS and things like that. And before that, it was the radio and the newspaper. Like, they were trusted sources. And there were plenty... I'm sure there were plenty of different examples of ones, like... Um, you know, they're a bit too early for us, and we're none of us are experts of that, um, of, of the controversies that would have surrounded those. So, yeah. um yeah, I, I just try and put my phone away once it gets yeah. into the evening and don't touch again until the next morning. And I leave it on silent, like, all of the time because I don't want it to be that part of my life. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a necessary part, but I don't yeah. want it to be a dominant part. Put it down, pick up a good book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, on that note, I, I thought it was uh, doing the research and prepping the trivia and stuff. I, I found it interesting that Andy Warhol called uh, this film the Clockwork Orange of the 80s. Yeah, okay. That kind of, you know, going over the brainwashing kind of stuff. Like, I, I think yeah. it's a very... It's an interesting comment, if albeit a kind of maybe base read. <laughs> it, is, it is a good point. Like, they do sort of address similar sorts of... Um, and they, they do it through their own forms of shock. Yes, yeah. Mm. It shares similar as with Taxi Driver too, with the whole kind of oh, public yeah. assassination thing at the end. Mm. Yep, yep, yep. And paranoia and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, this... This is my favorite Cronenberg film. Uh, I I love it dearly because, as I've said, like you know, there's multiple ways you can read into it, interpret it, depending on even how you read it that day. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It it is maintained insanely well. I don't think that's a good thing necessarily. No. But it's like the fact that it is still relevant in 2020 yeah. is. I mean, like, you know, nearly 40 years on. Yeah, like, it's more so because it's even easier to find the that edge because of the mm. internet. So it's even more prescient. Yep. Uh, so. Yeah, like, normally a, a film or something based around a technology is going to date. Yeah. Um, that technology gets old, you try and predict the future, and you get it wrong. Yeah. Uh, he's got it right. Yeah. It's not about... <laughs> I like to put it simply. Yeah. Um, it's not about TV and... Um, Betamax. It's about no. technology itself. Exactly. Yeah. And the way and our relationships interact with them. Yeah. And it, it holds up beautifully. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree. Like, th- this is the most fascinating I've seen um, Cronenberg. Mm. Yeah. Like, um, The Fly, I, like I said, I really enjoyed. Totally different. Like, yeah, some similar machine-based themes and stuff. But... Um, different in terms of character and relationship and stuff yeah it still has that body horror stuff it, it almost works as well as like an AIDS allegory as well yeah the fly, well, it, like... that's, yeah people say that that's that's AIDS but it's all disease and it's death itself like aging yeah it's like Cronenberg very clearly is disgusted by the human body yes. <laughs> this is like this is a rotting meat sack that we all wander around yes. it has been imbued with a consciousness for some reason <laughs> let's explore that <laughs> what, what if the meat sack had you know is corrupted by media what if it slowly turns into a fly what if it has telekinetic powers <laughs> yeah yep. it's great yeah um, I don't know did you guys have anything else or do we I think that um, that covers most of the things I would have bring up at least. I, I had one thing uh, I just thought was kind of interesting with the one of the extras that was on the set of the Videodrome set. You know, one of the extras that were being tortured. And, oh, you got that? Oh, I got that for trivia. Okay, let's go to trivia then. You can you can go for it. All right, uh, is this uh, David uh, Tsubiyoshi? Is no. that who you're talking about? No. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm talking about one of the ladies that was uh, tortured um, and killed. When, uh, at, at the Videodrome set for mm-hmm. one of the films that Max Ren watched mm. um, one of the extras kept coming back days after dressed up makeup this is in the commentary about mm. David Cronenberg and 
she was she obviously was really fascinated and excited by the fact that she was acting in what would be a snuff film but not obviously a real snuff film but Cronenberg mm. um, mentioned that she kept coming back for days and that everyone was like that's fucking weird but Cronenberg <laughs> this is why I like him so much he says but it was okay because it just felt so in line with the film that this this quote unquote weirdo kept yeah. returning it's like this is just kind of the perfect thing that that occurs on my set. Yeah, yeah. And, and didn't he say like he thought he thought she was just getting some sort of therapy or catharsis out of it? Like it's yeah. almost like primal scream therapy, just yeah. being pretended to be like whipped and beaten to death while script. Like it's like oh, okay, I got that out of my system. Okay. <laughs> well, she's like Max Wren mm. in that she's interested in finding that um, the cutting edge too. Yeah, find the line and yeah, what happens? Yeah. Well, Mm. Uh, the one I was talking about, uh, he appears as the uh, Japanese porn dealer at the beginning, who's oh, selling yeah. him uh, samurai dreams. Uh, he later became the mini- uh, became a minister in Ontario's uh, provincial government. <laughs> um, uh, his appearance in the film uh, as a pornographer uh, was exploited uh, by his uh, political rivals during his campaign. So, <laughs> but, but he defeated them, I hope. Yes. Good. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, we've really been over most of it. The only other thing like we didn't really touch on was uh, Brian O'Blivion being based off uh, based off Marshall McLuhan, um, the brilliant professor on uh, multi on media, mm-hmm. uh, who was a professor at the University of Ontario and you know widely considered one of the godfathers of like media analysis and things. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, briefly has a role like cameo in Annie Hall and stuff like that's yeah yeah. yeah. Inter- interesting stuff well we'll look into Marshall McLuhan mm-hmm. um, but everything else we've kind of really gone through already so we'll move on to the actual Criterion edition itself so the film is still in print from Criterion as a two disc DVD or a one disc Blu-ray and it comes with two audio commentaries uh, one by David Cronenberg and director of photography Mark Irwin and another by James Woods and Deborah Harry Camera, a 2000 short film uh, starring Videodrome's Les Carlson, who was um, uh, Barry Convex, mm-hmm. uh, written and directed by Cronenberg. Forging the New Flesh, a new half-hour documentary uh, featurette by filmmaker Michael Linick about the creation of Videodrome's video and prosthetic makeup effects. I watched that. It's, it's excellent. <laughs> uh, effects Men, a new audio interview with special effects art, uh, creator Rick Baker and video effects supervisor Lenick. Uh, bootleg video, complete episodes of Samurai Dreams <laughs> and seven minutes of a Videodrome transmission. <laughs> wow. Uh, with Cronenberg commentary. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, my favorite feature, which I, I've watched a couple of times and is great, uh, Fear on Film, a 26-minute roundtable discussion from 1982 between Cronenberg, John Carpenter, John Landis, and Mick Garris. Oh, my gosh. Uh, right. I believe that was on Canadian Public Access Television, and it's fantastic. Uh, trailer, promotional featurettes, still, still gallery with hundreds of behind-the-scenes photos, uh, as well as booklet and essays that Criterion usually do. So you get a bucket load of stuff. Yes. <laughs> And if, you get, stuff. and if you get the old DVD, it looks like a Betamax tape. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's a good one. I've never seen a Betamax tape. That's about what they look like. <laughs> okay. Cool. And they were chosen in the film over VHS because they were small. So it's easier uh, to do yeah. the practical effects. Broad, yeah. Broadcast VHS tapes are like the size of Tom's record player over there. They are big, uh, like... All, they're like... That would be a big chest slit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but really, uh, I guess that will wrap us up for this week's episode on Videodrome. Thank you for joining us, Eric. No, thank you for having me back. Mm. It's um, yeah, good to be on these ones. Yeah, and if you enjoyed uh, Eric discussing film, uh, feel free to check out our other podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's called You Haven't Seen That. Um, it's quite different. It's, I watch all these films that Chris and Tom definitely grew up on, um, yeah. and I missed... Like, there's an episode where Tom... Tom, you've guessed it on a few episodes. Uh, we did The Wizard, the Nintendo movie with Fred Savage. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, and Dumb and Dumber. I did not grow up watching Dumb and Dumber. Um, Showgirls. <laughs> Showgirls. I did not grow up watching Showgirls. Um, but yeah, so check that one out. Hopefully we'll be... Yeah, we've had a... Society has forced us to take a break. <laughs> but, That's a good way to put it, yeah. But we will... Um, we we want to get stuck back into that. We, we kind of can now, so... Mm. Um, yeah, so I'll keep people abreast of when we're putting out new episodes of that, so stay tuned. But otherwise, uh, if you have any comments or queries, uh, send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail.com or you can hit me up on Twitter at CriterionQuest. 
Um, I really loved the listener letting me know this week that uh, I was right in my assumptions that Richard Linklater was a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course he was. Of course he was. I he mean, seems like a nice guy. Yeah, yeah. So we have now confirmation from right. a friend of a listener who is one of the kids in School of Rock. <laughs> really? Apparently. Awesome. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, look, send us stuff. We love hearing from you guys. But otherwise, we will be back next week with another film that I fucking love. <laughs> Ah, uh, the Battle of Algiers. Oh, cool. Mm. Yep. We've got another guest for that one as well. Hopefully. I, I hit him up last night to see say. if he's confirmed. Uh, so we're still Ma- waiting for him. Mikey Mike? Yep. yep. <laughs> it, it's a political history film, so we need say. Mike. Yeah, he'd love it. Uh, so I'm really excited for Tom to see this one. I, I, I love Battle of Algiers. So tune in next week for that. Otherwise, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, for this week's episode, I'm Chris. I'm Tom. I'm Eric. See you next time.